Welcome to the CX AI and Outsourcing Podcast, a show about the people, technology, and economics that are shaping the customer support industry. My name is John Walter, and today we have a conversation with Amateyu Basu, co-founder and CEO of Numer, which is spelled N-U-M-R. This episode dives into what it looks like to measure customer loyalty in the age of big data and AI. I'm excited to hear this conversation because loyalty is the single most important metric that you can try to capture when it comes to a customer because the customer's willingness to buy your products, not only today, but tomorrow and the day after that, and their willingness to refer your company to other friends and family, that is the core to growing a business. And it is companies like Numer, which tries to derive actionable insight to understand how the customer feels about you and what they're going to do next in ways that are not creepy. No big brother AI data collection, as you'll see on this show. It's using operational data you already have and that the customer is comfortable giving you and allowing you to actually make decisions based on that data. Without any further delay, let's get started. I'm going to tell you with Numer, it's a pleasure to have you on here. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me, John. It's very nice speaking with you. Yes. Yeah, we, we previously spoke about your technology, and I'm excited to to dig in deeper and just to talk about your background and, and what got you into this direction. So real quick, can you explain Numer from a bird's eye view and what led you up to this point? Yeah, the thing that we need to sort of understand is when we look, want to understand a customer's experience, the customer comes from a place which is more than just the interaction he has, right? So every time a customer interacts with an organization, he or she experiences some sort of an emotion. And those emotions are what really drives his future behavior. Um, there's this fantastic study by an author called Daniel Kahneman. And he talks about system one and system two thinking. You know, when you look at system one thinking, that's all instincts, that's all emotions. And most people, whether it, they're buying a car, whether they're buying a toaster, whether they're buying a candy, they, they drive from that position of emotion. That's where they initially start from. And if you think about looking at market research data or at any kind of data which is interaction data, at that point in time, you're looking at behaviors. You're looking at what the customer has done, not the why behind what the customer did, which is emotion driven. So even when you answer surveys, you know, you're presented with 10 choices and you sort of have a chance to reflect, to think, you know, okay, what am I thinking? And your system two thinking kicks in. It's no longer in emotion at that point in time. So we understand that and we saw that there is a gap which is there in the marketplace where customer emotions aren't really tied into customer behaviors. And we are not able to predict basis customer behavior because we are not looking at the emotion. Numer was set up with the explicit intention of tying in these customer interactions with their emotions to predict what they will do next. So we have conversations with customers, with some customers. Of course, everybody's not going to have a conversation and use those customer conversations to then pattern match with people who are similar, who have had probably the same kind of experience and project this emotion that we have captured from people who we have talked to onto those people using a pattern uh, recognition algorithm and then understand how those people will emote and how those emotions translates into sales. So that's what Numa does. Long answer. Very that's, interesting. That's, that's what it does. No, that's great. 
And it's such an interesting topic. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And let's take a step back. Let's go back into the years. I understand you've been in this industry for a while and your origins are shaped by, and I'm sure your current trajectory is inspired by the work done on the net promoter system and net promoter score. So let's go back and kind of talk about the, the origins of companies taking an effort to understand customer emotion and as it relates to the impact on loyalty Mm-hmm. And can you reiterate, because I know we talked about it previously, can you refresh my recollection on your relationship to the net promoter system? Yeah, of course. So um, I started my career fresh out of grad school uh, in Cleveland, uh, and I moved to New York, and I started working for this company called Satmetrics. And um, Satmetrics is the company which invented the NPS measure. So if you, even today when NPS is, if, if you act, use the word NPS on your website or anywhere else, you will have to give attribution to Bain and Satmetrics who sort of co-invented the measure together. And the inventor of NPS is Fred Reichel, along with Dr. Laura Brooks. And um, Dr. Laura Brooks was my uh, mentor. She was my boss uh, in Satmetrics. So I was part of that team that sort of did the initial digging around, trying to understand exactly what the net promoter score is. Um, Just to take a step back, why did we do that analysis? So we're talking about late 90s, early 2000s. At that point in time, the only industry established measure that was there was used by customer support teams, and it was a CSAT measure. Uh, the customer satisfaction scale. It was a zero to, not zero, one to five point scale. How satisfied are you with your um, with your service, with the services that we provided, right? Uh, five being extremely satisfied and one not at all satisfied. So the American ACSI, American Satisfaction Index, it was called, uh, would publish the average satisfaction score for each company across all the companies that they did the analysis for. It was a publicly available piece of information. And try as we might to try and understand how the satisfaction lead to a financial measure, we just couldn't do it. So We saw companies with very satisfied customers who were not going too fast. We saw customers with very low satisfaction who were growing very fast. So we just didn't, we weren't able to establish any kind of relationship between customer satisfaction and a company's performance. So when a client would come up to us and ask us, you know, why should I satisfy my customer? I mean, yeah, you should satisfy your customer, but there is no financial linkage. I can tell you why. I can't really give you a reason as to if you satisfy, this is the benefit you would get. There was nothing like that available. So that was the reason we went into this whole sort of investigative detective kind of work to try and figure out exactly how do we quantify this. And through a lot of research, it was various things we tried. Uh, What we empirically found was that when we use the recommendation question, which is a zero to 10 point question, so where... We ask, how likely are you to recommend this product or service to your friend and colleague? And if somebody gives you a 9 or a 10, um, we call them promoter. And somebody who gives you a 0 through 6, we call them a detractor. Why 9 and 10? And why 0 through 6? It is because when you take the percentage of people who have given you 9 and 10, and you subtract from that the percentage of people who have given you 0 through 6, the net number, the net promoter score, starts correlating with financial performance. Interesting. It's like speed of light, which is like constant. We don't know why that speed of light, that speed of light. It's just like that. Why nine and 10? Why zero through six? We don't know, but that's the way it was. It worked out. The math worked out in that way. 
So one of my yeah. pet peeves is that people choose to change the scale. They use a zero to seven point scale and call it a net promoter score, or they use a five point scale and call it a net promoter score. You cannot. It's like saying that speed of light is now different. It isn't. It just yeah, doesn't work. It just doesn't work. It's Correct. a calibrated system. Very interesting. It is so interesting. Such a basic question. And, and I've got a question for, for you, someone who, who's been deeply involved in this. When it comes to phrasing the question for asking if someone's, is there a certain formulation of words that you must stick to? Is it recommendation to your friends and colleagues or how, how do you phrase the question? I think that is less important. It is who your who you think you uh, your customer would be recommend, recommending to. Okay, it it that I don't think is a very big deal. What is a big deal is that this question cannot be asked in all circumstances. I mean, one of the initial findings that we had, and I know Bain didn't really push this through, but they have talked about it a bit, is that. You shouldn't ask this question in all circumstances. I'll give you an example. You know, this question is now used across the board, even in transactional systems, where let's say I've gone and I've had a support call and I've called up uh, customer support and they might have resolved my question, might not have resolved my question. And I send them a survey asking them, you know, how likely are you to recommend? At that point in time, it's just one instance of the entire spectrum of the customer journey. Right. So because of the recency of that one event, my impression has a spike one way or the other. It's either a positive or a negative spike. The amplitude of that spike will decrease over time. It'll get layered on with other experiences that I have. Right. So a customer as a whole might, I mean, unless it's a very extreme case, my needle will not move that much in terms of my net promoter. Right. And when a needle doesn't move that much, what we in statistics call it is that it reduces the variability of the data. Once the variability of the data reduces in statistics, my prediction goes out of the window because I need a lot of variation in the data for me to predict. The higher the variance in the data, the stronger my predictions would be because I can correlate highs with highs and lows with lows. If my data is flat, it's very difficult for me to correlate with a increase or decrease in, in financial performance when my, you know, uh, emotional data is flat. So yeah, I, if I'm asking a net promoter score in, in an event, which is a transient event, oftentimes that will be, it'll be very difficult for you to associate that with a financial data. A much better um, instance, a much better question in this particular case would be the customer effort score, which is essentially saying that how easy was it for me to solve your problem? That's, these are great points. I'm loving this conversation. When is the best time to, to capture the NPS? It's non-event driven. It is basically asking a customer out of the blue. Or me, what, we, what I love to do is ask him on his anniversary. So he's been with you for a particular amount of time. Second anniversary, third anniversary. You know, last year, you've been with us for three years. How was last year? Based on your experiences over the last year, how would you recommend us or not? Yeah, that's great. I love yeah. that rule of thumb. Just on the, you know, you can't go wrong with it on the anniversary. Yeah. How, how do you argue with that? Okay. <laughs> if there's a, if, the, if a team is trying to decide on a date. And, and it's also something that, you know, from a customer point of view, it also tells the customer, look, this company knows when I became a customer of theirs. That also, build, it's a bonding exercise at that point in time. It is your opportunity to bond with your customer as yeah. well. 
So along with it being a survey and a conversation asking, yeah. I want to just understand the temperature here. I want to understand how you feel, but I'm asking you because on this day you joined us. So thank you for being a customer of us. Yeah. Net promoter score or net promoter system is fascinating. It's favorite metric of mine. My favorite book in the whole customer experience landscape is Winning yeah. on Purpose by Fred Reicheld because he demonstrates very strongly how this metric can be used as an objective yeah. guide. Whereas there's so much literature in this industry that's it's more of just like um like a pep rally, uh, kind of like cheerleading. Like it's like a, a lot of like love your customers, <laughs> serve your customers. But but here Fred Reicheld's like, hey, here's 20 years of financial data you know, correlated with yeah. NPS scores and it's jaw dropping. It's amazing. Absolutely. I mean, I love that ex example. I'm sure you read it where he sort of um, bought the stocks of all the companies that were the net promoter leaders mm -hmm. and he held on to them from 2011 till 2019 or 2018, something like that. And over those nine or 10 years, uh, he outperformed the market by 400%. Yes. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. Yes. And it's and it's just data that's not really publicly available. You, you mentioned earlier about that, that CSAT data being publicly available, but there's a lot of challenges with NPS. There are some challenges and, and also that's a little yeah. over 20 years old now, and we are in the age of big data and AI is doing phenomenal things. And so I'm just constantly curious as to what's the next evolution not to you know diminish the yeah. importance of NPS, but saying how do we stand on the shoulders of giants to get deeper insight, perhaps on an individualized customer basis, on what they what's impacting them positively and negatively, yeah. and to what extent. And so uh, that's one of the reasons I'm very interested to do a deep dive now into what your company is doing at Numer. So can you can you get give some insight onto where you pick up the baton and start running when it comes to deriving additional insight? Absolutely. So let's understand where we are in the landscape here. The very top end, the very best companies, what they are doing right now is that they survey their customers around 4 to 10%, best case scenario, 15% people respond back to those surveys. They take those survey respondents, understand where the pain points are, for those respondents. And they also close loop with those specific customers who are really dissatisfied to try and turn them around. And the very best companies who are who are doing this, uh, what they're doing right now, is using this kind of analytics to set up huddles, to set up process improvements for those customers who have responded to the survey. The problem here is that I am sort of neglecting 85% of my customers because those customers haven't responded to survey. Now, a market research company will tell you, you can extrapolate from that 15% what the 85% thinks. I agree. Yes, you can to some degree extrapolate it. But what you cannot do and what you should be able to do right now is to be able to react to these people much faster and at scale and at a much more granular level. You bring up a fantastic point, John, that you know today data is abundant. Every company has so much data in their system that it, you know, most companies don't know what to do with it. It's overwhelming, right? People drown with the amount of data that's there. It's terabytes and terabytes of data that you're generating on a monthly basis. Let's take a very simple example of an automobile company, right? You have data from vendors, you have data from data from factories, you have data from, and this is not even before this is before the customer has even 
come into the picture. You have so much data prior, which is actually going to make an influence, have an influence on future performance. We have a customer, which is one of the world's largest automobile companies, and they track error rates from their factories, right? And the error rates from their factories has a direct correlation how how customers perceive that particular product down the road, right? So if they were able to understand how error rates impact customer perform experience and which errors which, which would yield the most negative response, which would then yield in less future performance or less recommendations and referrals, they would reduce prioritize those errors which would be causing those things the most. And if you notice in this entire thing, I don't need a survey. Right, I could say that okay, I'm just looking at the error rate of the customer of the product that's coming out. I know that these sort of error rates cause these kinds of emotional response, which I have figured out already. And I know when there's a ne- negative emotional response, my referrals go down by 14 percent, which then means my sales are going to go down by three percent. Right, so I can build this entire chain up with just the internal data that I have, and I don't need anything else. Yes, very interesting. So I'm very interested to he- understand how you're establishing the data points. So you, there has to be a data point for event A occurs, and then there is an emotional response that's attributed to that. Are surveys used at that point when you're building this data set? Yeah. So the first step in this is to be able to connect all the data points. It's like a customer data platform, CDP, but it's more than just a CDP. The CDP's function is to create segments for marketing purposes. The purpose here of collecting the data is to create links to understand what impacts what, right, down the downstream. So in the first instance, what you're doing is you're connecting all these different data sources. So I'm getting data from the factory. Every time a car is released, it actually goes through a something like a 2,600 point check, okay? So I have a 2,600 point data stream for every car that's getting out of the factory, that's coming into my system. So now you can imagine the richness of the data because now if I have that many data points, my analytics and everything else becomes extremely powerful because I now have a lot of data to play with. Now, let's say in a month, a thousand vehicles get sold, right? Those vehicles go out, people start using them. We now have conversations with customers, not surveys. We have conversations with customers using AI. The advantage of having conversations rather than surveys is that conversation allows you to have a very clear understanding of the customer emotions, and you're not tying down the customer in any rigid scale. The reason surveys were used is because it was impossible to have open chats with people five years ago, even 20 years ago. It's just not possible, right? So that's why surveys were invented. In fact, if you ask a market research company and any company for that matter, you know, what is the best way for me to understand the customer? They'll say focus groups, right? I want to have focus groups with my customers at my initial stage. And then basis that I will create a survey, which I will send to everybody else. So survey is an approximation of all the conversations you have in focus groups. Yeah, that is such a good point. I love how you say conversations and not surveys. And that is a new development. I mean, this wasn't really possible up until a few months ago. Absolutely. So it was possible once, you know, conversational AI sort of came into the picture, right? So now we we have conversations with customers where the customer is speaking in two, three minutes, they will tell you exactly what they love and what they do not like. And so the conversations are typically voice. 
Um, it's voice or it's text based. And because this okay. conversation needs to happen for us across the world in multiple different languages, voice is very difficult to do because that is not that well established yet. But text is. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. What I've noticed with playing around with chat GPT and like yeah. building your own GPT is that it's pretty good if you instruct it at saying, you don't tell it what questions to ask, rather you tell it what facts it needs to elicit. So you allow it to take its own path, but say, hey, here's all the facts that you need to obtain. And it's, and it does a good job. It does a good job idea here and, and i think where a lot of the problems with conversational ai comes in is that it will give you an answer which is not true or it's give you an answer which is biased or it will give you an answer which is inaccurate right in this particular use case it's not giving an answer it's asking yeah it's very good at that it is yeah. very good so at that. if it's asking and it's not really researching and giving you an answer for it it's it, it just is a fantastic tool at this point in time yeah. You know, I, I have not seen this yet. I really wish I would get more of this type of interaction. It's very interesting. I used to be a customer, a mm -hmm. long time customer over a decade with a certain telecom company. And I left them because they had horrendous customer experience, <laughs> horrendous, yeah. like horrendous customer service, it was yeah. horrendous customer support. I, I had a, just a, a pretty basic technical issue and it was half of a week of my life was spent at the store talking with and, and on the phone and trying to get it solved. And, and when you go to the store, the person has like, I guess they have like a employee customer support hotline that they have to call. And they're like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm on hold. <laughs> and tell you, I ended up leaving the company. No one yeah. ever asked me why. No one ever asked me why. They, they never asked why. I get, I got a promotion in the mail from them today. They're offering me a free iPhone and a free iPad and a free <laughs> Apple Watch all together if I will come back to become a customer of theirs. <laughs> and no, I won't. But if they would simply promise me that their customer support was improved and if they would, I could see it happening if when I decided yeah. to cancel my service, I could have gotten a call from them like, hey, I'm so sorry you left. Can you please just explain what happened? And it would, it would have been, even if they didn't solve the problem, it would have been therapeutic for me to actually have yeah. someone on their end to be able to report this to in a comprehensive way. And man, like this is really cool what you're doing. So you get the data from conversations, not surveys. Yes. And then- So conversations, not surveys. So the, so, but I'm not having conversation with everybody, right? Only about 15, 20% of the people are gonna converse with me, the rest of them aren't. So now I've understood, okay, Maybe the starter is a problem, which is really creating a lot of issues. Winter months uh, in Canada, it's coming up. Uh, people who have starter issues are really tense and they're really reacting pretty strongly with that problem. I now go back to my data with all the, in that 2000 point check that I talked about, and I look at all the vehicles that are coming out with that starter issue or potential starter issue. Marks it with an orange that there might be an issue. It clears it through, but it marks it with an orange that there is a problem there. I can now raise alarms for all those people and send it to the call center saying that call up all these customers that they might have an issue, even if they're not talked to me. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. Okay. So yeah, so it's 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 being proactive rather than reactive. So you are really being proactive based on the data that you already have. And for a company, now remember that 2,600 point list, there would be oranges, millions of them. A company cannot have the resources to handle all million. 
But if I now tell them that in this particular case, this is really a burning topic and you're going to elicit a very strong emotion, out of those million, I've now bring it down to maybe 5,000 or a few hundred. So you're giving them a very specific target on where to invest their customer support resources. This is impossible to do everything, right? You, no company has a resource to do everything for under the sun. It's not going to happen. So, I mean, in your case, for example, when you, when that company didn't call you back or when you stopped paying that bill, right, you churned out. At that point in time, they should have gone back and seen your payment history. They should have seen how that you how much you've been spending with them, how long a customer you've been. And an alert should have gone to somebody in that team saying that you are losing a very strong customer here. Do something about it. But that would only happen if I pull it, pull yeah. back your internal data and look at you over time and build that journey up, which is not possible in current systems, which is what Numa is doing. Yes. So let's say an enterprise is, is using your technology. What does it look like from their perspective? Is it a dashboard yeah. of some sort? Is it a collaborative effort between you, your company and the organization to help do deep dives and do some type of investigation to find areas of improvement? So there are three things I get. So the first thing they will do is we will work with them to link in all their systems. Right, So we will link in, like I mentioned, the factory system and the customer support system and any system that they have, We will our IT team will spend time with them to link in all the system because a lot of companies have legacy systems. I'll, for example, with keeping in the automobile space, um, they have what they call DMS, which is dealer management systems. And the DMS are bespoke systems that are very different for each dealership. They have gone and invested their own thing, right? So there's a lot of integration that needs to happen at the front end. Once that's done, we then start the data flowing in and we set up these conversations across the touch points. And these conversations are very easy to set up. It's just telling, giving chat GPT, this is what the conversation is going to be about, go ask. And, and we have screens that allow you to set those up. So anybody within the client team can set that up or we can do it for them. Once this has started happening, then what happens is that the system has an insights engine which starts trying to find patterns, right? And it starts matching people up with those emotions. Not only people have answered the survey, but the people who haven't answered the survey, right? That is automatically happening within the platform. It's automatically trying to find people who are similar and projecting that emotion on them, trying to figure out, okay, is it, is it valid? How sure am I that this person is this? Is that satisfied? So that threshold set up and it's trying to understand and it's trying to pick that up, right? In this process of doing this, we also have data scientists who will come in and tweak that model as it's going along, right? So they are monitoring the system at the back end and there are data scientists who are sort of saying that, okay, this particular algo doesn't look right. Let me tweak it a little bit and see if I can get a better predictability out of it. Okay. During this time, the regular, you know, what I mentioned, the best in class companies doing, you know, the things like uh, understanding what pro what the survey people are saying, what the survey responders are saying, closed looping, all that's happening in my platform already. So that's level one is already taken care of. And level two is now getting built up. Now that gets activated after certain amount of data is in the system because you, I need a certain amount of data in the system before I can start building those models out. Once that's done, and this takes anything between three to six months, now start getting these insights and these alerts about everything that's going on in the system. So the system automatically starts highlighting and you're highlighting the right people who need to take the action. So you'll get notifications on your phone, you will get notification emails, you will get no and these are just notifications saying that in the Dallas dealership for uh, this particular company, we have seen that the referrals have gone down by 12% because customers are not 
uh, happy with the delivery times. That's amazing. This is amazing. So it becomes a virtual assistant that is fully integrated with the operational data of the company and it surfaces relevant insights at the moment Absolutely. they're happening. That is so cool. <laughs> that is so cool. And so imagine, what, is it, what does it look like to set it up? I mean, when it comes to like a revenue perspective for your company and a cost perspective to the customer, I imagine it's a, a kind of like an upfront fee because it sounds like there's a lot of integration that goes on into it and then like a, a recurring monthly subscription. Yeah. So basically the way we work is there's a setup cost, which is an initial upfront fee, but it's usually around 10% of the annual cost. It's not a lot. And then we have an ongoing fee, which is basically determined by two factors, which is number of users accessing the system and the amount of data points that's coming into the system, right? So the amount of data that we are uh, putting in uh, and the number of users who are going to access it. There are other small little parameters here and there, but basically these two factors. And then we have a separate team that you can use, which is my data sciences team, which can give you additional insights and really dig into the data, do data modeling and all sorts of other analytics if you want it, that's there. But that's not, that's an optional extra. You automatically get these insights and everything else going. Yeah, this is very cool. You know, I I talk with a lot of different tech companies and there's some, a good handful, even some that are very impressive. I mean, like I'm talking like publicly traded companies. And a year ago, I was like, man, this is an awesome company. I'm so glad it's publicly traded because I can like buy Mm -hmm. stock in it and, and, you know, like catch this AI boom. And then now a year later, I'm like, they just got outpaced by OpenAI. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like, they're they're actually, I'm I'm selling that stock now. When it comes to your company, I don't see any of that risk. Everything you're doing is very complimentary to all forms of customer brand interactions, whether it's, uh, you know, automated or through humans. And, And so it's very cool. But as AI is progressing and becoming more capable of, conversing with humans and drawing inference from complex conversations. Do you see, you know, any future evolution of how your go might adapt as a company? Yes. So one of the key features or one of the key things that we are doing, so you're, you're absolutely right. You know, we are using complementaries. So the better AI becomes, the better our conversations will become, better our insights will become, right? So that just is a complementary thing that we're doing because we're using that technology rather than building that technology. But one of the areas that I think there is going to be a lot more development that will happen, and that's where we want to be at the sort of top of the cusp is in this insights bit. Because uh, as I said, data is abundant. Everybody has tons of data and people don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to use it very well. So that's where we come in, right? Because we are really helping getting the most out of the data and using that to supercharge people's insights, right? So that's what we are doing. So I think that's where another 10, 15 years AI will be focused on is making a lot more sense of large volume of data and figuring out how to tie all these things together, what leads to what, how is that journey mapping happening, all that in a data set will be something that I envision AI to be able to take on at a later point in time. But that's not what we are focused on in this whole AI revolution right now. What we are right now focused on is understanding humans, understanding what people are saying, and using a knowledge base to answer that, right? But we are not really focused right now on taking a huge bunch of data 
and making the right associations to take the insights out of it. But it's going to be there. It, it is something that is going to come out. I'm 100% sure of that. Whether we are the company who does it or whether there's somebody else who does it, that's up in the air, but that is something that's going to happen. And it's not going to happen just for the kind of data I'm talking about with customer experience data, but it'll happen with billing data. It'll happen with any kind of data you can think, inventory data, manufacturing data. It'll, you know, people will start building AIs that take a huge bunch of data and analyze it and figure out patterns out of it. To what extent do you anticipate external data from beyond just the customer interactions, um, but perhaps even like social media profiles? Do you ever think about that kind of thing? Yeah, so we do take data in from social media. So social media is one of the channels we take data in. The problem with social media, I believe it's sacrosanct, is that people, when they are answering on social media, want to give that opinion anonymously. And ideally, I shouldn't be taking that data and, and trying to connect it back to the customer. Though lots of companies yeah. do do it, lots of companies have solutions around it. But I personally believe that it's ethically not the right thing to do. If a customer wanted to be known, they would come, you know, maybe con give their credentials. They would say, this is who I am. Talk to me. Come talk to me. Whether that's through social media channels or whether that's through a customer portal or a chat channel. That's how a person would say, come and talk to me, company, Mr. Company, because I want to speak with you. When I'm making a post on a board, on a RSS board or a, some kind of a tweet I'm sending out, and I don't want the company to know who I am, I want to retain that anonymity. Yeah. These are really good points. You know, when I think about the ethics of using external sources of data to enhance customer support interactions, I personally draw the line at the point where a customer would reasonably expect a company to have that type of data about them. And what you're talking about is, you know, you're getting data about customers and their experiences through conversations, through maybe not that exact customer, but maybe similarly situated customers who've been down that same path before. And then, of course, the customer knows that, hey, I, as a customer, had this specific experience, and I appreciate that you are trying to infer what my emotional state might be because of having that experience. Just as, if, you know, if you're dealing with a human and like something yeah. bad happens between two people, you're like, oh, it's actually a good thing called empathy to be able to put yourself in a customer's shoes and to not be totally oblivious to the fact that they're going through something. And I think it's really cool that you're, you're kind of honoring these boundaries. Yeah. Let's say you've gone for grocery shopping, right? And you would know what I have bought. If you're the company and you know I go grocery shopping or placed an order online, you know what I've bought. And you know that I have substituted something for you, right? And you know that I returned that substitute. So you know that there might be, I didn't get what I want, wanted at that point in time. And so the customer, when, when he's contacted about this fact, they would expect the company to have this information. But if they don't expect the company to have an information if I've sort of gone online and I've said, you know, XYZ uh, groceries really sucks because they cannot store this kind of product. They don't expect the company to know that. So I think that is a line we should maintain. And if a person wants to be anonymous, they should have the right to be anonymous. And with the power of AI and the abundance of data just available through ordinary operations, it seems like it's not really necessary for brands to get it's not. creepy data, right? To, to start being yeah. big brother. It's not necessary. And to the extent you might get a little bit of lift and predictive ability, it's not worth the sacrifice of integrity. 
Exactly. And the other thing that's happening, and it's going to happen sooner rather than later, is that Google's doing it, Apple's been doing it for a while. This personalized ads and personalized tracking of customer across websites and things like that is going to go down more and more. People don't like to be tracked, right? But if I'm interacting with the customer, that becomes a far better mechanism for me to understand what the customers what my customers are at least going to do i don't know somebody who isn't a customer yet their emotions but 60 to 70 percent of my purchases are repeat purchases i don't need ad tracking to be able to target that customer better i know that customer already because that customer has interacted with me already has bought from me already has visited a particular store or has gone online already I have enough data about this customer to you know, show him a relevant ad just from my internal historical data rather than following him across websites. Yeah, that's a good good point of comparison. When it comes to next steps, if anybody's interested in learning more about your company or just wants to continue these conversations with you on LinkedIn or other channels, what's the best way for them to reach out? So I am pretty connected. So you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. You can reach out to me on Instagram. You can reach out to me via Twitter as well. So there are multiple ways to get in touch with me. Our company's website has forms where you can get in touch with my team and my team will be immediately in touch with you uh, to sort of understand your requirements. We have what I've said sometimes I've talked about large organizations, but even smaller companies, companies with you know 100 employees, 200 employees can also benefit because they're probably using a very simple off-the-shelf survey tool, which is what they're sending out to the customers. They're taking some insights out of it, right? Even those companies can benefit from a system which looks at their internal data, which they are not looking at this point in time. To invest the kind of resources you would need to invest to build up this data model, data lake internally to be able to build this customer experience lake, as I call it, is a huge amount of investment. And there is no reason for you to go down that path and make that investment on your own. It's much cheaper to use somebody like me. So a lot less of a headache, exactly. Yeah, I'm sure a lot less otherwise, of a you have to hire people from the domain, you have to build that you know, entire domain expertise up and that's not what you're doing. You're selling a, you know, you're selling T-shirts. You're not a data analytics company. Why would you build that up? So even a smaller company who has yeah. a presence is somebody who would, you know, who can actually benefit from looking at their own internal data, connecting it with customer emotions, and predicting what they're going to do next. And I believe we have been able to do this. You know, there are multi-billion-dollar companies out there which are in surveys and various kinds of market research and things. It's it's not a new game, right? But us being a much smaller and nimbler company, we mm -hmm. were able to come up with a very clear product differentiation, which is sells a different value proposition. It says that, look, surveys are important, but you can do a lot more. So similarly, when a new, small company comes to us and we tell them, look, you can tell your customers that we sell you X, but we know you like we know our own family, right? So that can be a differentiation that you can move use in the marketplace. Product differentiation is reducing more and more because people are working from home. I can hire somebody from India. I can hire somebody from Ukraine. I can hire somebody from Poland or the US, right? So the best talents are available everywhere, right? Because boundaries are no longer that valid anymore. So what I can differentiate in terms of product, in terms of the actual article that I'm selling is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and more and more niche. The real differentiation is going to come in through customer experience. That I think is, is still a greenfield. 
that's how you can really differentiate yourself, right? And yes. I think even smaller companies can benefit with that differentiation. Agreed. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk today. I've really enjoyed learning more about the company and just having these broad conversations about customer experience, CSAT, NPS, ethics and privacy, data analytics, the whole gamut. So really, really appreciate your time. And anybody who's interested in having this type of solution, I recommend reaching out to Numer. I'll provide in the show description a link to the company website and Amateu's LinkedIn profile. And man, let's just keep in contact. And thanks again for taking the time. John, thank you so much for doing this. I have watched your other podcasts as well. What you're doing is fantastic. I love the conversations you've had. I've learned so much from watching the other podcasts that you've done. So um, I really appreciate you taking the time today. And, and thank you so much for doing this. It was wonderful speaking with you as well. Awesome. Thanks for the encouragement. We'll be in touch. Special thanks to Amateu for being on this show. And thank you for listening. If you would like to reach out to Amateu or his team at Numer, check out the links in the show description. Otherwise, I hope you always have a great week and I'll see you next time.